Exodus 34, verses 1 through 7, these are God's words. And Yahweh said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone, like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as Yahweh had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So far the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. So the Lord is showing Moses his glory. Uh, as Moses uh, kept praying for things that were according to what he had heard from God's word and Every time the Lord said yes, Moses was encouraged to pray a little bit more for something from God's word. Whenever we pray in that process, we ultimately end up saying, show me your glory. Even the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us, it ends, doesn't it? For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. And it begins, hallowed be thy name. Uh, and so all right praying participates in this desire to see God's glory, and God's answer to the final request, the ultimate request of Moses, of course, is yes. And as we saw at the end of uh, chapter 33, it's Christ uh, who is the ultimate fulfillment of that yes. The word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten is in the bosom of the Father. He has fully revealed him. Uh, or Hebrews chapter 1, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, who is, among other things, the radiance of his glory. And so there's much we can see here in Exodus 34, 1 through 7, about Christ as the fullness of the revelation of the glory of God by paying attention to what the Lord shows Moses when he shows Moses his glory. And the first thing that he shows him is his law. Again, his law is good. His law is glorious. It is not to be despised. What the law couldn't do, it couldn't do, as the apostle says in Romans, because it was weakened through our flesh. The law does not save. The law cannot justify us. We are sinful. The law demands atonement for sin, blesses and praises the one who is perfect in righteousness and full in his sacrifice and complete in his wiping out our guilt. Uh, and yet the law cannot justifies, justify. Uh, God, by Christ, had uh, to justify. 
Uh, and yet the law is good and the law is glorious. It is uh, a verbal expression of the character of God and the applications to our lives of the implications of who God is and what he is like. We should love his law from our innermost being, from our inward being, like uh, Romans 7 says. We should call the commandment not just holy and righteous, but also good, because it's God's commandment, and he is holy, and he is righteous, and he is good. And so the first part of God's showing Moses his glory here uh, is the re-giving of the law. Cut the two tablets of stone like the first ones. Uh, and he makes it clear that he is not diminishing his glory at all by what is coming in the rest of the display uh, of that glory. He's not diminishing his law at all. He's not diminishing the danger to sinners and the danger to creatures of being in the presence of God because he gives now a repetition of some of the same rules that he had given when he was announcing the law of God verbally to the nation all the way back in chapter 20. He says, no man shall come up with you. Don't let a man be seen. Do not even let flocks or herds feed in front of the mountain. You remember Hebrews 12 talking about how terrifying Sinai is, that even if a beast should touch the mountain, it shall die. Uh, and so the first part of the display of God's glory is his law. Uh, the writing of new tablets is uh, fulfilling not just the display of God's glory, but also the request that the Lord would publicly identify himself with Israel as his people, that the I will be your people and you will be my God pr uh, promise would be fulfilled in his presence going with them. You remember that's been a big part uh, of the prayer requests after the incident with uh, with the bull, that God wouldn't just go ahead of them, but that he would go with them, that he would be among them, uh, that they wouldn't just have the people promise and the place promise, but that they would especially have the presence uh, promise that they would belong to the Lord. Uh, and the first two tablets have been called up until this point uh, also the tablets of the testimony, so that they are not just an expression of God's moral law in a particular situation, but that they are uh, the contract, as it were, that will go in the box of the testimony, in the ark of the testimony, will be the tablets uh, of the testimony. So the Lord... Uh, is showing his glory as the God of Israel and the God of glory. Uh, Moses cuts the two tablets, verse 4, and he uh, rises up, he goes uh, up to Sinai. Uh, Moses uh, had seen Israel break covenant with God. He had broken the previous set. God can undo what Moses has done to the tablets, and God can undo what Israel has done to the covenant itself. Uh, this is part of the display of his glory that he continues to give us his law, uh, which itself is an expression of his character, uh, but that there is grace for us to have him among us. And that brings us to the next uh, display of his glory, the glory of his nearness, uh, the glory of his nearness in um, in the gospel. Nothing else is to come near, but Moses can come near. Moses has been told to come near. And even as the Lord now comes and makes his presence known in a way that is more intense and dangerous, he does the same as he had been doing 
uh, at the tent of meeting, at Moses' tent, which was put far outside the camp, you remember, it says, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Uh, it's amazing what he does on the mountain he had been doing already in the tent. You remember from chapter 33 that um, God treated Moses as his friend and spoke to him face to face. Here is the display of his glory. Here is the way we see his glory uh, in this life, this is especially through our ears, as the Lord proclaims uh, his name to us. In other words, the proclamation of the character of the Lord and the proclamation of the outworking of that character of the Lord, which we call the gospel. So we had the glory of God in his law, and now we have the glory of God in his gospel, uh, which, of course, is the only way that Moses could be there to begin with uh, and is expressed, that glory is expressed in the Lord proclaiming his name. Yahweh passes before him and proclaims. What do we hear about uh, Yahweh in his gospel? Uh, we hear that he is Yahweh, Yahweh God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Uh, so we uh, have not just the glory of God's law and the glory of God's uh, gospel, which is uh, which is in the nearness of God to us and God's own proclaiming himself uh, to us and the opportunity, the, uh, the offer of being reconciled with God, uh, but especially the glory of his grace, uh, the glory of his grace. This is the favorite uh, aspect of his glory, uh, which uh, we say with reference, uh, with reverence, God is simple, which means all of his attributes are all together in their fullness. There's no tension between them or separation. God is what he is entirely uh, in every part of what he is, which itself is a poor way of speaking, because there are no parts uh, of uh, of what uh, God is and who God is. And yet, in his proclamation, uh, there is that which goes first and that which goes most, that upon which he places the most emphasis, that which belongs to his character within himself. For God from all eternity, in his justice, in his holiness, uh, there is no, uh, there is no judgment, there is no punishment, there is no wrath. Wrath is not inherent to who God is, because there is no sin upon which to pour out wrath from all eternity within God. Wrath and holiness are an expression in relation to the creature. We experience them. Uh, in relation to the creature, uh, but they are God's intensity of adoration among the Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, and devotion and delight and enjoyment uh, among the Father, Son, and Spirit. <coughs> Therefore, when he proclaims his name to us, it is especially that which comes out of uh, of. Uh, enjoyment and devotion and fellowship, adoration and union and communion uh, that he declares 
uh, as the favorite part, as it were, of his glory. So he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, God. And then you have these things that come, yes, in relationship to us. Uh, there's, there's not mercy or grace within the Godhead because uh, there are no persons in the Godhead who need mercy or grace. So you, you hear how these are still being declared in relation to the creature and even in relation especially to the redeemed sinner. Uh, but they are God's own uh, self-love, if we can say that. Uh, but there are three, uh, as it were, persons and selves. Be careful with that language. Three persons uh, in the Godhead. Uh, and the the emphasis when God displays his glory to us is upon his love. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering. Why is he patient for so long with so much sin? Because he is abounding in chesed and emet. Uh, goodness and truth is how it's translated here, but it's covenant love and covenant faithfulness, uh, and more than can ever be needed or necessary. So in his devotion to himself and in his love for creatures who have been loved by, uh, in God's own devotion, uh, to himself, uh, there's this, uh, plan and determination uh, to save from sin that will endure whatever is necessary uh, in order to complete and fulfill the plan. Uh, this is part of where Paul gets the idea in Romans chapter 9 and verse 22 and 23. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So he wants to make his wrath and his power known. But what if he, wanting, even though he wanted to display these aspects of his perfection, like we're about to see in Exodus 34, endured with much long-suffering vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, why? That he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so there are those whom the Lord has prepared beforehand for mercy, and he's got this plan that focuses primarily in among the Jews uh, from, uh, from Abraham until the the day of Pentecost, and then it explodes into the world among the Gentiles. But whether it's among the Jews or among the Gentiles, there are these whom God has loved and prepared to be vessels of mercy from before the world began, and he is willing to suffer long with sinners and sin and not display yet the fullness of the glory of his wrath and the fullness of the glory of his justice because there is an emphasis on the display of the riches of his glory in his mercy. And you can hear the uh, the same emphasis here when he proclaims his name and he leads with merciful, 
gracious, long-suffering. Why? Because he is abounding in covenant love and covenant faithfulness. And what do that, what are that covenant love and that faithfulness, covenant faithfulness determined to do? Clearing the guilty, sorry, not clearing the guilty, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so there is this plan for keeping mercy and forgiveness uh, in displaying his glory and his character in relation to those whom he is redeeming. And there is also within that plan reminders that he will indeed display his justice and his wrath at the last. That even in the course of history, even in the course of families, when God gives children up to the same sins as their fathers, when God brings consequences on households and nations, it is a hint, it is a reminder, it is a lesson in the character of God that is righteous and just. And he by no means clears the guilty. No, the forgiveness of iniquity and transgression and sin is not going to come by him uh, pretending sin away or treating it as less than it is. Because to treat sin as less than it is, God would have to treat himself as less than it is. And he will not do that. And so this forgiveness is going to come at last by the Lord Jesus enduring in himself all of the wrath that every sin of everyone whom he would save deserves. And so how great is the glory of the Lord Jesus that for these thousands, by comparison to these three or four, or this third and fourth generation in verse 7, even for these thousands, all of the wrath for all of their iniquity and transgression and sin uh, would be absorbed by Christ. And so there is uh, the glory of his grace, the glory of his justness, in the glory of Christ in the gospel. Our creator is glorious, and he has made his son in his salvation the great display of his glory. As you trust in him for forgiveness and ask him to take away your sins, as you look to him for power and ask him to help you live righteously, ask him also that you would know his glory and that his answers to your prayers would display his glory, that the God who is willing to make his wrath known uh, is in great long-suffering enduring vessels prepared for wrath, that he may show his mercy. So may he may show the riches of his glory in vessels prepared for mercy. This is what he's doing in our lives. And so we ought to be responding uh, to what he does with praise, adoration, wonder, love, uh, from which flow uh, obedience and service and all of the other things. Uh, But first and foremost that worship and that love that comes uh, in response, that is the right response to to the display of his glory. Let's ask him to help us. Our Father in heaven, when we say, show us your glory, we know that you have shown it in the scriptures. And even just now, you have shown it in giving us to, upon your own instruction, have family worship time going through the Bible 
seeing the greatness of your glory in so many passages, but especially in this one. And yet, O Lord, when we ask you to show us your glory, what we uh, need most is the help of your Spirit to remove the veil from our eyes, to take away our spiritual cataracts so that we may perceive the greatness of the glory that is right in front of our eyes and even more so, O Lord, right in front of our ears. So help us by your Spirit. Take the dullness and the deadness of our heart away. Circumcise our hearts and give us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone so that we may see who you are, so that we may be amazed, so that we may worship, so that we may love. And then all of our obedience and service would flow out of this from having seen you, from having known you. And so we do pray for the help of your Spirit that we would see your glory, especially and ultimately in Christ. In his name we ask it. Amen.